I once was lost. Threshold three, opening up to change. It is clear to me that you have a purpose in life and I don't. What am I missing? Abner removed the bong from his closet. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, chirped his party buddies as they got ready to smoke out. Abner crossed the room to find his lighter. To their surprise, though, he proceeded to burn not weed, but the bong itself. What the heck are you doing? They shouted. Sorry, guys, Abner said as he looked over at his buddies. I'm burning this for God. That night, as Abner burned his bong, he was putting into action that something stirring inside of him. He had become open to change in his life. But how had this beer-drinking, pot-smoking guy become open to change? During Abner's freshman year, he became friends with one of his roommate's buddies, Alex Salcedo. Their friendship continued into Abner's sophomore year, and it was in this year that things really started to change. Alex was part of Brewing Christian Fellowship, BCF, the InterVarsity chapter at UCLA. The staff and students in BCF had asked themselves a very dangerous question. What would we do if we were really serious about trying to reach this entire campus? The fruit of those discussions was a quarterly outreach event called The Edge. We wanted an event to invite our non-Christian friends to that didn't feel like a typical church service, but would provide an atmosphere to talk about spiritual things. We wanted it to be welcoming, and we wanted it to be cool. So students in the fellowship formed a band and practiced popular songs for hours. The drama team worked on creating modern-day versions of biblical stories. The speaker would pick a recent movie as a topic of discussion and interweave themes from the movies with themes of spiritual growth. It was a cool place to invite our friends to who wouldn't normally set foot in a church or Bible study. Alex knew that his role in the body was to pray for his friends and invite him to the edge. So he invited Abner. And as Abner sat in the audience one night and listened to me, Doug, talk about the movie Face Off, he began to say to himself in surprise, Doug gets it. He understands me. At the end of the event, Abner filled out a response card. And within a few days, he and Alex were sitting in my living room asking me questions. After we had gone back and forth over spiritual issues for a while, I said, Can I pray for you right now and help you experience the presence of God? Abner said, No way. So I tried another way to nudge him toward God. God is pursuing you. A famous Christian author once said that God is like the hound of heaven. He just can't wait to pour out his love upon you. The battle in the moment was for Abner's openness. He had come to my apartment for answers, not for changes in his life. What he found was an invitation to change, and that did not feel like good news to him. Would he be open to thinking of God in a whole new way? Would he become open to a new way of looking at life? Two weeks later, Abner and another friend, Mike, went to the track stadium to get high. Under the stars, facing a dark field, Abner continued to think about the things I had said. Questions had been nagging him ever since he went to the edge. Abner recalls, with the beer in one hand and the joint in the other, as I was sitting there in the bleachers, I felt like I saw clearly where my life was headed. I was flushing my life away and wasting it just like my uncles had done, and I didn't want to do that. This clarity shifted things inside Abner. He made up his mind to become open to change. He did not know the path ahead, but he did know that the bong stood in the way. In melting the bong, he was choosing to be open to change in his life. Once he decided to become open to change, it was much easier for Abner to become a seeker and then to come into the kingdom. The Beauty and Horrors of Change Abner's story illustrates a principle we have seen again and again in our postmodern friends who have come to faith. Before actively seeking God and considering becoming a follower of Jesus, they had to become open to change in their life. And becoming open to change is much harder than it may seem on the surface. It is actually a heroic, mysterious, deep thing. You see, there's a pretty big difference between just being curious, threshold two, and being open to change. 
To use a farming analogy, it is as if the ground has been tilled, building trust. The seed has been planted and watered, becoming curious, and now a turning point has been reached. In these ripe conditions, will the seed break through its case and germinate? Will the process of growth take a significant turn? A heart starting to become open to change is a lot like a little seed's effort to send forth its first shoot. As we continue to water and nurture the process along by building trust and instigating curiosity, the seed begins to sense an environment that is conducive to the growth. Many of our friends told us about this pivotal nudge toward growth and change in their lives. On occasion, this environment leads quite naturally and easily to change. As they learn more about Jesus, some folks have a hunger for change and grab hold of the moment. Not only do they want to discuss spiritual issues that they are curious about, but they really want good and satisfying answers. Their own lack, their own life, makes them open to considering a new way of life. But we've found that for everyone who easily makes the transition from being curious to becoming open, there are many more who struggle to become open to change or who never do at all, but just walk away from the journey to faith altogether. Out of all five thresholds, becoming generally open to change is often the most difficult to overcome. Change is beautiful and horrific, after all. Even for postmodern folks who proudly wave a banner of openness, being open to real change is a tough thing. Always has been. Always will be. Remember the rich young ruler, Mark 10? This guy wants to hang out with Jesus and follow him around. He seems to have trusted Jesus, threshold 1, and came to Jesus with real questions and curiosity, threshold 2. He was ready for anything. Come on, Jesus, give me your best shot. But when Jesus took it deeper to see if he was open to a real change in his life, in his case, rethinking his relationship to money by selling all his possessions and giving everything to the poor, the trusting, curious young man walked away sad. Turns out he was not as open as he thought he was. Why? Well, he had much wealth, we're told, as sort of an explanation for his behavior. Change has always been hard. So becoming open to change is tricky business. Despite how often and how beautifully openness as a concept is held up and celebrated in our postmodern context, real change is just plain difficult. Becoming open to change is a tough, tough threshold to cross. One reason this part of the journey is so difficult is that it dawns on our friends that they need to see the world in a new light. Questioning your own worldview and contemplating the Christian perspective for yourself is revolutionary. It can mean coming to terms with deep-seated dissatisfactions and unanswered questions and disappointments. It can mean giving voice to pressing questions that have remained unanswered and purposely ignored for years. Where is the drinking taking me? How do the one-night stands feel the morning after? Why isn't the anger and bitterness towards my parents dissipating this time? What meaning might there be in the twinges of guilt after I rip into my roommate? It can even mean contemplating death and the afterlife. While becoming open to change opens beautiful doors to healing and redemption and purpose in life, actually opening those doors can feel horrific. It's not surprising that many people resist opening them altogether. This all points to a very important question. How can we be good friends and farmers during this part of the friend's journey? Is it possible to help people open up to change? Are there ways we can walk alongside our friends as they face the steep, difficult, spiritually charged hill in front of them? Be patient as the journey unfolds. The need for patience is somewhat obvious. This is deep stuff that sometimes just takes time to unfold. Many of our friends told us how they danced back and forth between wanting change and being terrified and strongly opposed to change. One day they are feeling dissatisfied and are starting to open the door to deep questions and potential life change. 
The next day, they aren't interested in anything except their familiar status quo. We believers can empathize. How often have we toggled back and forth between embracing a risky call of Jesus and trying to avoid it? This dance takes time, and the process of deciding is often half the point. We need to be patient with our friends in this. We also need to be patient as they try on what it would be like to change. The voice of impatient wants to declare, This is true. You just need to believe. Put aside your questions and accept Jesus. The voice of patience and compassion invites, What if this God thing is for real? Patience gives the gift of space and permission to explore. You offer freedom as you help folks ponder the what-ifs. When meeting with Abner, Doug told him to give God a trial run. This tenuous stance of suspending disbelief and daring to try on what it could be like to believe what Jesus says sometimes takes time, and we need to be patient with that. They need to know that we are their friend regardless of what they decide. They need to know that we like them even as they are, not only if they change. And sometimes they just need space. Dawn Nathan was a friend of mine here in Boulder. We became friends because we were both artists of sorts. I was beginning to dabble in writing, while Nathan was an art major who drew and sketched almost constantly. We started to show each other our stuff, and since I was mostly writing about Jesus at that time, Nathan became very interested in Jesus and started asking lots of questions about him. Though Nathan's parents were believers and he had grown up in the church, Nathan had chosen other paths once he came to college and had dismissed Jesus as sort of boring relic from his childhood. But through our conversations, Nathan started exploring Jesus seriously. We were good friends. Jesus was interesting. So we got together almost weekly to hang out and talk about Jesus. I assumed Nathan was a seeker, and I treated him like one. After a few months of this, though, it became apparent that Nathan's surface questions, why would God send anyone to hell? Can words really have any meaning? Why are Christians so unlike Jesus? We're really a front for a deeper question that he was facing. He knew that following Jesus would affect every area of his life. He had grown up in the church and heard plenty of convicting servants in his childhood. And yet he really liked his life the way that it was. When I first began to realize this, I felt a bit deceived. Sometimes we can feel tricked by non-Christians. They ask questions that make us think they are true seekers. When the truth is often just that interacting around these questions is the easiest, handiest way they know to relate with us. But as I prayed for Nathan, I realized he wasn't trying to trick me. He was generally stuck. He didn't know if he wanted to be open to change or not. Some days he did, other days he didn't. That conflict within him was real. He needed real time and a real Christian friend to walk alongside him during that season of his life. We need to not just endure a friend's journeys, but have real patience with them. Practicing Enduring Prayer Prayer is essential during this spiritually intense season. There's much going against openness, including very real spiritual enemies. Not only do we need to remember to be practicing intercessory prayer that pushes the battle, but we need to be long-suffering in this. Read Exodus 17, 8-13, and you'll have an image of what we believe is called for. The Israelites are in battle, and whenever Moses raises the rod of God, the battle goes well. Whenever he lowers his arm, though, the battle shifts. So, of course, Moses raises his arm on a hill that's away from the battle. He's interceding. Seems simple enough. But what happens to Moses? He grows weary. At first, his friends bring a rock for him to sit on. But even a seemingly simple activity like holding up your arm while seated becomes fatiguing with time. Eventually, Aaron and Ur have to come and help Moses hold up his arm. We, too, need to intercede for our friends. And we, too, need to be reminded not to stop. 
not to grow weary, it might not be a bad idea to get an Aaron and Ur of our own, enlisting other people to uphold us as we uphold others at this spiritually intense time. Given how deep these struggles are for our friends, as we are patient with them, we also need to be praying our guts out for them. This is spiritual stuff going on here, profound decisions about life and direction and faith. And as we consider our own hesitation before a hard decision, we realize how key the spiritual side to this step is. This world, our enemy, and our fallen nature all conspire against us at this stage of the journey. There are many spiritual influences that would dissuade us from opening the door to change. Given how many people never make it past this threshold, we can't overstate how our ongoing prayers for our friends need to be redoubled at this part of their journey. Challenge as Jesus Challenged Our friends don't merely need us to be patient and understanding. They also need us to be active as we walk alongside them. This often means tension for us. If our friend says she's an open person, but she is in actuality quite close to change, how can we help her see this contradiction and escape this common postmodern dilemma? How can we help our friends move toward being open to change in their lives? Sometimes she will simply need a friend who will say gently, Don't you want to be open to new things? You told me you think of yourself as an open-minded person. We all know how it helps to have someone come alongside us with encouragement and clarity as we toggle back and forth considering a choice that is scary. We need space to decide. But sometimes we need someone to raise the question for us. Think about your own life, and you'll realize that sometimes we just need to be challenged. Sometimes we need our excuses ignored and our fears pointed out. Sometimes we need someone else to be frustrated by the pains in our life. Because we have grown accustomed to the pain ourselves, sometimes we, as believers, need this kind of help. Is it any surprise that our non-Christian friends would need the same thing? For most believers, challenging people and appropriately raising the bar for them is probably the most uncomfortable activity to engage in. Most of us have a hard time challenging even other believers, or ourselves, let alone our non-Christian friends. The great thing is we have Jesus as a model in this. Jesus challenged people all the time, and though he practiced speaking the truth and love to people wherever he went, his approach differed dramatically depending on where people were and what they needed. We have much to learn from Jesus in this. In three consecutive chapters in John, Jesus challenged people to be open, but in each case his posture toward them, his way of nudging them towards openness, was very different. Jesus touches the pain of the broken and honest. In John 4, Jesus meets a woman with a past. He wants to help bring her pain out into the open so that he can offer her something categorically better, his own living water. What is his approach to helping her face her secrets? Gentle affirmation. When she begins to crack the door on the truth about her brokenness, he honors her several times for her risk of self-disclosure. You are right, he says to her. After choosing the path of affirmation, Jesus uses gentle honesty. He puts his finger on her core issue, the whole truth about her. She has been married five times and currently is living with yet another man. She should run from Jesus when this fact is exposed, but she stays, a tribute to Jesus' non-judgmental truthfulness. We can and should practice the same non-judgmental truthfulness about our own and other people's brokenness. How do we help people talk about the difficult and disappointing things in their lives? First, we ask good questions and listen compassionately. Also, we can speak honestly about our own lives. In fact, our stories of struggle and God's redemption may be the most powerful gift of hope we can offer to those facing the seemingly insurmountable threshold. 
Here are some examples of ways the two of us have practiced non-judgmental truthfulness while taking the conversation deeper. I'm a mixed bag. I try hard to be loving, but I regularly run out of love. I need God to pour it into me again and again. How about you? Can you relate? Are you a mixed bag? We all need help to get by. We might get our fix at Starbucks, at a party, or on the internet, but we all need a fix. I find my fix in God. What do you think about a spiritual hookup? I am tempted to hide the truth about what is really going on inside of me. To be honest, I prefer facades, and when I am willing to get real in front of God and let down my mask, God touches me with His love every time. I have learned that everyone is tempted to hide behind a mask. When you are honest with yourself, do you see places where you could use the touch of God in your life? Jesus mobilized the self-pitying and fearful. In the next chapter of John, Jesus interacts with a different type of person. This man, a paralytic, has been stuck by his pool for a long time. In John 5, Jesus does not honor this man for his truthfulness about his brokenness, as he did in the preceding chapter. This man does not need to ponder his painful situation. It really doesn't need highlighting. Instead, Jesus calls the man to do something about it. Jesus doesn't even hesitate. He simply calls for change. Get up! Pick up your mat and walk! Verse 8. Jesus speaks with authority and doesn't let the man make excuses for himself. He simply says, Get up! Often our friends lack the courage to make life-changing decisions. Satan has them gripped by fear. What would my friends think? What would my parents think? What about those eight other questions that I haven't found answers to? What if this is a mistake? And what they really need is a nudge to just act. How can we lovingly challenge those paralyzed in fear or guilt? Here are some things the two of us have said to friends. You should ask God for a sign. He loves to give signs to those who are open. How would you feel if God gave you a sign? What is keeping you back? Jesus wasn't afraid to give signs to people and help them understand their signs as moments of God's love in their life. On the flip side, it did upset him when people saw signs yet refused to receive them as gifts from God and respond in faith. Let me pray with you for 10 minutes a day over the next week. If you and I generally seek God together for the next seven days, I am confident that he will show up for us. Are you willing? Remember that story about the Good Samaritan? I'm going to feed the homeless next week. Please come with me and see how it feels to live out Jesus' words. Put the scripture into action. Help them experience Jesus' words that lead to transform living and life itself. Jesus agitated the complacent and glib. A couple of chapters earlier, Jesus meets someone who has a lot of good answers about life's hard questions. He has things figured out. In John 3, Nicodemus asks a theological question. Can a man re-enter his mother's womb and be born again? Nicodemus is a very religious man, but Jesus isn't fooled by his image. He replies, You are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? Verse 10. In essence, you call yourself spiritual? Jesus uses a little sarcasm here to cut to the chase. Because of where Nicodemus is coming from, Jesus decides that he needs to be agitated and confronted in love. Come on now, you should be getting this. Nicodemus likes his old way of viewing the world and his old assumptions about life. He needs someone to jostle him out of his complacency. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do for someone is not to beat around the bush in conversations, but instead to just call them on how they are afraid to change. Our friends who are like Nicodemus tend to be articulate and thoughtful, probably good at debate. It is tempting to enter into their debate mode. 
Jesus wisely sidestepped the temptation to debate the exact nature of rebirth with Nicodemus. Here are a few ways we've tried to follow that example with our friends. You talk like truth is relative. You tell me that what is true for me is just true for me. But you don't live that way. You live like we all hold things in common. Like love counts for everyone. I'm glad you don't live like a relativist, though you talk like one. You have some interesting thoughts about how life holds together. So how's that working for you? What do you do when life gets hard? Soul Awakening Events How would you feel if you could invite your curious but not yet open friends to an event that would help them consider becoming open to spiritual things? These types of pre-evangelism events can be very helpful in the process of coming to know Jesus. But it is essential to remember that folks at this threshold are not yet seekers. It is better to think of them as skeptics or cynics. With whom are you in relationship? If you know mostly seekers, we would suggest seeker-guided events. More on these in the next chapter. But if you know mostly cynics, then we suggest events that help the warm-up process. How would you create an event in order to serve those far from the kingdom? The principles would have to be different from those of seeker events. Based on our experience, we suggest the following. Number one, choose relevant topics. Select topics that they are already thinking about. Movies, pop music, and current events are good places to start. Romantic relationships never seem to fade as a relevant topic. Number two, find unique angles. Surprise them in how you come at these topics. Put yourself in their shoes and come at the topic from their perspective, asking their questions. Jesus always had an unexpected word for those who came to him. Similarly, seek God for an unexpected word for them. Number three, use the arts. We use music and art and drama because they connect deeply and move souls. The arts are a gift from God, and God can sidestep our skepticism when the arts stir new feelings within us. The soul is supposed to cry out to God, and we can create events that help people get in touch with these yearnings for the living God. Number four, create a safe place. In contrast to seekers, the not yet open often need a place of anonymity. They need to feel safe to explore spiritual things at arm's length until they warm up to God. Number five, lead, don't pressure. These friends need to be led toward God, but not pressured. Two mistakes are often made in this regard. On the one hand, we can mistake them for seekers and offer them repeated altar calls. People at this threshold often feel weird about altar calls and can misinterpret them as manipulative or cultish. Swinging to the opposite extreme, we can create environments with no leadership at all. Then those present meander with no help from us at all. Jesus connected the dots for the confused and befuddled. In John 5, we see the Jews coming to some really strong and incorrect conclusions about Jesus. They wind up dead set against Jesus, literally, because he has been healing, because he is healing on the Sabbath, because he was calling God his own Father. It is interesting that Jesus doesn't try to affirm them and help them see their brokenness and hardness of heart. He doesn't call them to action. And at least on this occasion, he isn't just provoking them. Instead, he reviews for them everything that has been going on. When Jesus sees how confused they are, he launches into a pretty lengthy overview of events. See John five nineteen to 47 Jesus talks simply about his relationship to God the Father. He uses the phrase, Very truly, I tell you, a few times. He outlines what he has been doing, commenting on the fact that they shouldn't have marveled or been surprised. He talks about the Jews, how they sent messengers to John, what they've seen in searching the scriptures. And he ends by outlining why they are responding as they are and what is going on within them. Jesus just connects the dots for them. 
At this threshold, we are often simply helping to interpret and connect the dots in our friends' lives. If we truly believe that God has come to seek and save the lost, and we trust that He has been at work in their lives already, then it's often a matter of reframing the events and issues in their life within God's story. Gentle confrontation often reveals just how open they are to looking at things from a different perspective. For example, you could say, I don't think these are random events in your life. I think God is pursuing you. I think God is doing all he can to get your attention and win you over. I think God is trying to get your attention through that dream you told me about or that movie you saw. Your soul is yearning for God and you should listen to your soul. It is important to point out before we move on that for the most part, each of us probably has one preferred way of relating with others. Some of us are very comfortable with gentle truthfulness and empathy. Others really like challenging people to action. As you read about these different postures of Jesus, there was likely one that resonated more with you than the others. The thing about Jesus is he gave people what they needed. He served people by challenging them in a way that made sense for who they were and where they were. We too need to have such a servant heart. What does your friend need in order to be challenged towards openness? In general, we underestimate the importance of our role in speaking words of challenge. If you tend to be that way, please don't let your own comfort level guide how much you speak the truth in love, or you may never get around to it. To review, we have found that we can help our friends become open by being prayerfully patient and by challenging them. Both are important. Don, as Nathan the artist and I continued to hang out, we developed a deep friendship. And because I really cared for him, I would sometimes challenge him. In retrospect, I am glad I didn't just have patience with Nathan, but also honestly confronted him, raised questions, and helped point him back to Jesus. Eventually, Nathan graduated and moved away, and he was still stuck right in the middle of this threshold. He never said yes to considering a life change. In fact, toward the end, even his curiosity about Jesus started to wane. To be honest, it would have been easier to take the either-or track with him. It would have been easier to be the kind of friend who simply sits patiently, never bringing up hard questions or challenges. On the flip side, it would have been easier to be the harsh truth speaker who grills him with intense questions. Though living in the tension was difficult for me, I am glad I took the harder both and path. Nathan needed both. Being both patient and challenging was a way to serve my friend. What a threshold. To actually see someone cross this threshold is a wonder. Doors of possibility are opened up. They are asking questions about their own life and how they relate to Jesus. It can be exhilarating. But that exhilaration for some comes only after great pain and vulnerability and help on the part of their friends. In the end, it is only God's Spirit that is able to overcome the human hesitancy, fear of pain, and spiritual enemies that are against someone at threshold three. But when God does this, when He uses our patience and our prayers and our faithfulness to bring someone to a place of being open to change, it is a wonder. After Abner became open to change, he quickly became a seeker and then a committed follower of Jesus. He told his story to his friends, and God worked in them too. He took significant steps in kingdom leadership. After graduation, he returned to the East Los Angeles neighborhood where he grew up. Instead of using his college education to just get a better life for himself, he has chosen to speak into the lives of countless urban youth, exhorting them to choose life with God instead of gangs, drugs, and hopelessness. God is having an impact on a generation of young Latino leaders through Abner. The Jesus Revolution turned him around at age 20. Now that revolution is being offered to others. Today I, Doug, count Abner not only as a friend, but as an inspiration regarding what God can do in the city. As you help others through the thresholds of faith, 
They too may someday become your inspiration when you need it most.